Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of Sly Flourish's Lazy GM Prep. In this weekly show, I go through steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master while preparing for my Sunday role-playing game. I am running Numenera, the, the Numenera game system by Monty Cook Games. I am running in the world of Numenera, and I am running a homebrew campaign in Numenera called The Rise of the Fourth Emperor. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want access to video previews, exclusive content, previews of upcoming products that I'm putting out, the City of Arches campaign sourcebook, access to a dedicated Discord channel, all kinds of stuff, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get all of this material, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding and continued support. I did not have a game last week, so I, we did a bunch of prep. I was a little hasty, like I was rushing because I had a lot to do in the prep. And I guess it's serendipitous. I rather would have had a game, obviously, but I didn't have a game. And I ended up, so we, had, we only had two out of six players so it gave me a day off it meant that it meant that i had i had a little extra time and it means we have extra time today to kind of refine what we had done for our last game so that so that is good which means today we can kind of jump straight in to reviewing our current prep what we've already prepared and where the characters currently are and then refine it a little bit fix it a little bit and that it's rare that you get that opportunity it's rare that you get that opportunity to, to to do so here are the notes that we set up for last week and then we're going to change these oh i already moved the date i moved the date to the day to today because today's what we're doing it so we are in tier four where tier six is the highest tier for the characters in numenera i think it's as high as you can go i, I don't know if you can increase all the way up to to above tier six but I don't know. But they're getting pretty close. So we might go most of the distance in this. I've been I've been tearing them up pretty regularly. Like every session, every time they have a major discovery, I've been giving them a new step in their tier. Numenera has this thing of like tiers and steps. And a tier is essentially four steps per tier, which means they kind of go up to like 24-ish level or something like that. Typically, you can get to tier... So Jason C says, typically, you can get to tier six plus four advancements. So that's a lot, right? It's a lot of advancements. Is that 24? I think it's 24 advancements. So I think we're, we're, you know, we're going pretty far. I mean, tier four, step one is still pretty low though. So I don't know. We probably we might, I don't think we're going to make it all the way to tier six, step four, but that's okay. It's a hell of a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of leveling, which means you should probably level them pretty frequently, maybe more frequently than I have been. I think I should be really giving like a tier or a step every session, right? Like make the, the things that give them those steps should be happening more frequently. So I don't know who, who, if anybody is out this week, by the way, all of my notes that you are seeing the campaign notes that you are seeing, you are, are being done in notion. Notion is an excellent tool that I've been using to, it's essentially like wiki like software to let me build my campaign. If you want to know more about how I use notion for campaign planning, there is a link in the show notes below to talk about notion. So we have six characters in our campaign. We have Biko, the intuitive Jack who rides the lightning played by Pat. I really keep talking every set. I think every week I talk about how I need to draw more out of, out of Biko to try to understand where he's, where he sits in the, like what, what his background is and how he fits in, how he thinks about the current things. The player's pretty happy to just ride, ride the path. So, but you know, I think we could use more to draw his story in there. I keep saying that and then it never happens. Cecilia is a hideous Jack who wields power with precision. Cecilia is a member of sort of a bee-like race that found out not only that her race was genetically engineered by the fourth emperor many, many millions of years ago to only live for like 40 years or something like that or 23 years or something like that i think it was like 40 years but she has found a way to make essentially her race crystalline they can go from being like be like to having like a crystalline carapace that makes them essentially 
they can live forever. She doesn't know if she wants to do it though. So she's hanging on to this cure that could cure her entire race, but doing so means that they can no longer reproduce, but all of the ones that currently exist would be able to live forever. So kind of a fascinating little little question and problem. Jad the Shade is a meddlesome Jack who exists partially out of phase. I think the idea that Jad is sort of connected to the to the realm of the fourth empire but through this phasing i think that might be a, an interesting secret that could come out that the same kind of phasing that when they when they face these six which we're going to talk about i think maybe a fun secret and i already have too many secrets but we're going to put one in here anyway jad way of phasing is the same as that of the rorithic that of the rorithics so that will be, that's kind of an interesting connection. I don't know where that will go, but it's kind of neat that, that one of the characters can phase the same way that these like Polanyer assassins can, can, can phase. I think that'll be fun. Juniper is a cheerful nano who possesses a shard of the sun. Her mother, Cassandra, is dating a datasphere motorcycle enthusiast named Cucuccio. That's kind of fun. Nakia is a benefit, benefit, beneficent Jack who acts without consequences. His mother, they haven't talked to in some time. She's an Aeon priest. And they have not seen or heard from her in some time because they, they, they learned. Although I think now that they've taken over, I think it's certainly possible that she could contact them once again. And maybe, maybe like an, an end conclusion is we're losing Badrav comes from Nakia's mother. And she has been holding, she was kind of holding the line against the Faradon, the herald of the fourth empire, the fourth emperor who is ruling over that area. But now Faradon is destroyed. So I think she can now contact them again safely, but hasn't done so yet. So we're going to do that. So that's coming from Maeve, right? Even more reason to get a hold of the glistening army. That is Nakia. And then Samji, protective glaive who fuses flesh and steel, where this section of the campaign is really surrounding Samji because Samji's going to find out that he has 10,000 siblings living beneath the jade the jade colossus so the current plot of this campaign is that a very super powerful entity is coming from it helps i know like those of you who see this show all the time you're like oh my god he's reciting it again but it actually helps to me to get my head around the campaign when i think about kind of the overall campaign where it's been and where it's going so so sorry but it also helps if you're just watching this video for the first time to know what in the hell is mike talking about so the characters the 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 fourth empire the a very super powerful entity known as the fourth emperor used to rule over the earth about 400 million years ago or so and 400 million years you know 200 million years or so let's see 600 million years it was the fourth empire so 600 million years ago 400 million years after today and he ruled all life on the planet every molecule every living cell was by the whim of the fourth empire the fourth emperor the super powerful entity called the fourth emperor is returning to earth 600 million years as the last time he was here and he was precluded by a bunch of heralds these artificial super intelligences that look like large floating spheres they used to be up in orbit around earth but they came down to earth when they found out that earth was ready to be repopulated by the entities by the the followers of the fourth emperor and they have been releasing these armies of pathetic creatures known as orgolians 
who have been taking over the earth. They've been hunting down nanos in particular. Nanos are like, like wizards in Numenera. They're, they're people that are connected to the nanites that exist in all things. And they've been collecting nanos because nanos have been very useful for them to build out the rest of the fourth emperor. The characters have been breaking down this infrastructure. They, they managed to defeat one of the heralds named Faradon and added in their own, an NPC that had been following them, that an artificial being known as Takrin. They connected Takran up to the Faradon, so now they have their own herald that's kind of on their side. In the process, they have also managed to release a sentient virus known as the Hex, which is both a computer virus and a physical virus known as the Hex, who actually got rid of the Fourth Emperor the first time, but in doing so created a new Dark Age. So there's a little bit of a risk that the characters have released some kind of substance into the world that could create another Dark Age. The, the Hex, when it speaks to them, says, we don't want... We don't want to take over this planet. We want the fourth emperor's planet. And that brought up really interesting conversations of like, do we, are, are we in the right of releasing a virus into an entire other universe? You know, why would we, you know, and, and the, the answer was, well, better them than us. And they're like, really? Like, that's what we're, <laughs> that's what we're down to. So that's a very interesting moral question. And I don't know where that's going to come up. So the characters have made their way to a city known as Balarod, which sits right at the edge of a huge crystalline construct known as the jade colossus this it's almost like a mountain of jade a, a mountain of this constructed crystalline material and there are all kinds of cracks that lead down deep into the jade colossus uh the hex is a, um merrick says is the hex from jade colossus or my own idea the hex is actually a monster in one of the monster books but i'm repurposing it into something a little bit more sinister than what it is in the book itself jade colossus is a campaign adventure written by, by bruce cordell but i'm really only stealing little pieces of it i'm actually stealing pieces from two different bruce cordell campaigns one called slaves of the machine god which is about the rising of this army the glistening army and two is jade colossus because i like the location of the jade colossus a lot so i'm taking some plot elements from slaves of the machine god and i'm mashing it into jade colossus but really only taking small pieces of it and then fitting it into my fourth empire campaign which is a fine way to use campaign adventures i have i have no guilt over doing that i don't believe at all in needing to run a campaign the way the campaign is written the characters made their way to balarod so so basically they've been breaking the fourth empire's hold over this region and one of the things that they want is they, they already have a satellite that they control up in orbit that's able to fire telephone pole sized tungsten rods down to any place on the planet and blow it up like a like a 20 ton nuclear bomb they already can like destroy and they already did destroy a bunch of the fourth empire's holdings in one third of the planet but they also realize like we can't just nuke everything we actually need to we actually need more we need we, we need an army too we need a we need a, a, a land army they think that by bringing samji to they, they have heard that Samji, who is an artificial being himself has many siblings that have not been awakened thousands of them and they think if we can get a hold of samji's brothers and sisters we can we will have an army and we can use that to help defeat the fourth empire not just by nuking everything but also by overtaking it like badrav the, the city that they came from is overtaken by orgolians and they're at war now i think i think badrav is losing so i think the characters gonna need to do something quick but releasing the army it could be a way that they could do it quick so I think that that is going to work out pretty well. So our game starts in the city of Balarod. The characters have been walking down one of the major streets there. If I recall, Samji realcasts back into his world from his normal self. But also they find a portal to the deep ocean that the people of Balarod use for fishing. 
So I think that'd be kind of cool. I, I rolled this up. This is like a little fantastic location that I rolled up last time. And it was a, let's see if I have my locations. Yeah, I, I rolled up this like gravity defying swamp aquatic archway. And I was like, oh, that would be a really neat location for the adventure to start. So like in the center of the town of Balarad is this floating portal. They've seen one of these before actually. And it's a floating portal that leads down to the ocean below. And I think it would be neat if a, like a fisherman pops out and and has this great big like fish over one shoulder like a like a and, and kind of like looks at him like oh hey how's it going and he's like a spear fisher they go they swim into this portal they take a little pill so they don't get the bends or the pressure change doesn't really screw with them and they go in they hunt they get a fish they come out and they have the fish and so i think it's like a portal for deep sea deep sea diving i think that that could be anything and but meanwhile while they are there they get attacked by a bunch of rorithic thicks let's see i've got my bestiary what what page did it say it was page 109 thicks i just like the picture and i'm, I'm changing the lore one thing i've noticed with numenera is like the pictures do more for me than almost any of the text and then it's cool that they have like these descriptions but i'm like oh yeah that's cool because i'm gonna re I'm going to reskin them. I'm using the same monster, but I'm reskinning them as Planar assassins. They actually look a lot like the Predator, which is fine. Like there's nothing wrong with having having some some kind of thing. So they they look like a Predator, and I think they're they're level six, which means you have to roll a flat eighteen or better. But against the characters now at the tier they're at, that's not too bad. I think having like six of these things won't be too terrible. Uh, with the recognition that Samji is going to pop in and very likely uh, Samji's brother is going to show up and kill one of these things as well. So I think we're going to have a, a good pile of Rorithics, right? Maybe like four show up at first and then more show up, right? There's like four to six of them. And then Radius, Radius arrives to help his brother. And maybe Radius is seeking, thinks that Axis... Is it, yeah, that Axis is attacking, but it's actually Samji. I think that could be cool. Radius is an NPC that is a brother to Samji, and he is a member, awakened member of the of the Glistening Army. He's one of four. I think there were four brothers that all sort of woke up: Samji, Axis, Radius, and who's the other one? Origin. And they all kind of had different paths that they took. Origin and Radius stayed together. Axis did not. And Samji did not. And they all sort of split different ways. And I think that that's part of the story is like the story of these four brothers are kind of one of the main arcs in this, in this particular part of the campaign. So I already had written out my scenes. I'm cheating today, right? Because I already did a full hour of prep last week and I'm basically just running with a lot of the same prep. But it does give me a chance to sort of fill in some blanks. It's kind of nice, you know, that I, I have this opportunity to sort of fill in some blanks. So they're going to fight with the Rorthics. They're going to meet Radius. Navro and Berm are going to pop out of the portal, which kind of connects them to the, to the, to the, the, the underneath, the, 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 the deep, the deep, the below. Basically, underwater cities and stuff like that. They're going to delve into the Howling Caves. The Howling Caves is a big section of caves that leads down deep into the Jade Colossus and eventually reaches the area of the, the, the Pyramid of the Glistening Army. They're going to face Axis, and they're going to have to deal with him. They're going to unlock the Glistening Army, and then they're going to get a message from Maeve. We're losing Badrav, which means they need to send the Glistening Army to Badrav right away. 
And I think the characters will have a choice. This this might go a couple of sessions. So I'm I'm now going further out than just the next session. But it doesn't help, doesn't hurt to kind of think about like when the main the big choices they're going to face the characters. Like when are they going to do it? Travel to the deep and take the battle to the throne of the fourth emperor. Return to Badrav and liberate it from the Orgolians. Those are a couple of those are a couple of, of different paths. Ron Talks Tabletop says, so are you doing a scene every 30 minutes? I generally expect to run a scene every 45 minutes. It depends on the system and it depends on how fast things move and it depends on how many players are there. 30 minutes means you're going to probably have scenes that you're not going to hit, which is fine. 45 minutes, I, I usually have seen every 45 minutes is about right. And this is way more because I'm only doing three hours today. So usually like five scenes is usually as many as I need in a three hour game. Six or seven wouldn't be bad for a four hour game depending on but but your you know your your mileage may vary there there's another path which is like another decision point two-thirds of the planet are covered by other heralds and other eyes the eyes of the fourth empire which are the the satellites that can fire the nukes how can the characters hack those like they were designed not to be hackable because they require physical oh i know they could send so the problem is they need physical people to crack heralds and access the eyes but a mixture of so let's see the hex i guess this is kind of a secret but decision about taking over the other heralds and the other eyes i guess about letting the hex so one of the things that the hex may offer is the hex alone tacron let's see neither the hex tacron or the glistening army can take over the other heralds alone and eyes alone but together they could do so. All that's needed is infecting a few members of the glistening army with the hex and arming them with the spears of the quad cores. So this is a very dangerous move. So the situation is there are four remaining satellites that have these tungsten rods in them in three other two other quadrants of the planet uh, two other quadrants of the orbit of the planet and they are controlled by other heralds these other super powerful artificial intelligences the characters have determined that like humans alone can't crack a, a herald but these creatures that they've made called the quad cores which are actually joint they're they're, they're nanos they're, they're sets of nanos that have been joined together into single personalities that they know as they're known as quad cores. They were created by the fourth emperor and the characters liberated them. They're able to create these things called the, the spears. And the spears are essentially like viruses, computer viruses that were created by these quad cores that can crack the shell of a herald. They can get inside of a herald. The problem is that even cracking a herald doesn't get you access to the eyes because only physical access can get you to the eye. Except the glistening army has a way to actually transfer their, themselves into and out of the data sphere at will. They can, they can transfer. They can't go there without cracking a, a, a herald. But with a herald cracked, they could go up there and physically take them over. 
but the only way they could get control of the thing when they're there is with with the hex they can't do it manually they they the hex would need to do it which means you would have to inject the hex into members of the glistening army and send the glistening army but then they would get access to it and then they could take over the entire planet they could essentially stop the the rise of the fourth empire on the surface of the planet and all that's left is stopping the the, the fourth emperor from coming directly so i think that that's another interesting like major choice one of the fun things of this campaign is how big the scope of the campaign has been. It, the scope of it is huge. It's literally planetary. But it's also like they have to make choices about destroying other universes. Even in my biggest D&D campaigns, I didn't have choices that were this big. Like they would go to the planes and they would meet powerful entities and stuff like that. But now they're really talking about like, if we inject the hex into another universe, what happens to that universe? That's a cool question, right? That's a cool, big question. And like, you know, a lot of this game is them fighting alien planier assassins in a normal kind of combat and walking around exploring dungeons and things like that. But a lot of the decisions that come out of the results of these are huge decisions, huge questions that the characters have to answer. Like at one point they had three world ending technologies in their hands at the same time, right? Three different ones at the same time. And they had to make choices about like, well, which one are we going to hang on to? Which one are we going to seal away and never look at again? And which one are we going to try to defeat? And that, that, that's, that's changed. That's fascinating. It's a fascinating thing about this campaign, something about this campaign. And I think Numenera le leads itself towards that. I think this campaign world thinks big in scope, that billion year history of Numenera kind of gets your head and the monsters and all the kinds of things you read gets your head thinking really big and really wide. When you read like, you know, v you know Voices of the Data Sphere, and when you read like Into the Outside and Into the Deep, right, that, that these books get your head thinking really big about plot. And I love that. I love, I love having these like literally universe-sized plots that are going on in this game. So... Yeah, so I'm really enjoying it. I'm I'm really enjoying it. And and yeah, yeah, Nicole says I was thinking of the game sessions seem larger in scope than most D&D games, which is not, you know, it's not to bash D&D. I love me some rats in the basement. I love small problems, you know. I love that that micro focus on, you know, greasy-haired giant rats with little gleaming red eyes and rotted yellow disease-ridden teeth. I love getting into that like real small scope level of detail but i also don't mind getting really big in scope and the bigger the better and now i don't think you can get much bigger than this like you could be multiverse level stuff like dr strange multiverse level stuff but i'm pretty happy with one one you know two ch choosing the fate of two different universes is probably enough but i also like that it's still six people right it's six humanoids walking around making choices and they just happen to be at this place and the interesting thing was that the world that they were in the way the world moved because I, and one of the things that happened in this campaign is we had a 14 month jump in the time period because of a single cipher they used the whole plot went forward 14 months. And one of the repercussions of that was that they lost a lot of ground and it's exponential. Like it's nonlinear ground that they lost. Things got way bigger in scope, which meant they needed nonlinear solutions. They had, they couldn't just stab it with a sword. They needed to go find creatures that they could create that were capable of cracking a herald so that they could gain an exponential you know gain an exponential benefit over the fourth emperor or they were going to lose ground and they did so and that was really a fun angle to this like that they had they, they have to make this choice like two-thirds of the planet still aren't under their control and it could tear the planet into you know pieces so what are they 
are they willing to make this choice of sacrificing a couple of his own brothers? Is, is, is you know, are they willing, you know, is, is Samji willing to sacrifice a couple of his brothers to act as, as connectors to get up there and, 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 you know, stop what's going on in the rest of the planet. So it's fun. And I love putting these choices in front of the characters because they really have big, deep conversations about it. And I love them. I love these conversations. So yeah, so I'm really enjoying that. But getting back to the specifics, so, because that's going to kind of happen at the end. So they meet Never and Berm. They go into the Howling Caves. They're going to face Axis, who, who believes that the, the, the Glistening Army should never be released. And they have to kind of either convince him or fight him or something. And then they eventually get the, they get to the Glistening Army. Right. Location wise, I have this gravity divine swarming aquatic archway. I already I already kind of picked that. And then we have the howling caves and the howling caves is where most of the adventure is going to take place, that they're traveling into this a crack that goes down into the Jade Colossus. And they yeah, I don't I don't think like this is one where like how big an area they explore is going to relate with how how much time we spend on it. And I don't think I want to spend that much time. I'm kind of, I'm kind of eager to, to, to move things forward. I, I don't, I'm not bored with this campaign. Exactly. I don't think I'm bored with this campaign at all, but I'm also like, I'm, I'm kind of ready to, to, to move along. I think we're having fun. I want to, I think we're in like the big final stages of the campaign. I don't want to overstay that welcome. So I don't want to have like three sessions of them crawling through a dungeon. I already think this might end up taking two sessions, especially with some of the decisions that need to be made. So I think like I've already got two sessions worth of content here. And I don't think I need to make it three or four. And and I really want to get them like down into the I, I wanna I wanna sort of have big things happen and get them down and face the fourth emperor and kind of kind of get there. So I think my 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 idea, the fun thing with like a map like this, I just took this. This map is from Dyson Dyson Dysonlogos.com. If you go to Dyson Logos, you can find I, I I just love the maps that Dyson makes and I use them all the time. And a neat thing you can do with a map like this, this is actually something that Numenera talks about, that the author Monty Cook and, and the other writers for Numenera talk about. They have a game called, or a product called Explorer's Keys. And Explorer's Keys is a book of short scenarios for Numenera. And one of the things that they describe is that each of the adventures has like a key. It's got sort of a MacGuffin, right? A, a, a thing that they need, a thing that the characters need to propel the story forward. You can move the key. This is a real good, here's a real good D&D &D tip for you. In your campaign or in your adventure, you can build a key and you can design a key. And this key is sort of the thing that the characters need to move the story forward. It's either the thing that they need to end the game or it's the thing that they need to get to the conclusion of the game. It could literally be a key. It could literally be something that opens up a final door, gets to a final boss fight, you fight the final boss. If your adventure has this key, you can move the key. The key doesn't have to stay in the same place. You can have the key be the next monster that the characters fight drops the key. You could have the key in the furthest chambers of it. And it gives you this really good control over how long the adventure is. Is it overstayed its welcome? Have people getting bored? Or are people really excited and you're having such a good time? Where do you want to move it? You can move the key wherever you want it to go. And that's a really powerful idea. By tying your adventure around this idea of the key and then making the key mobile enough that you can put it anywhere in your dungeon gives you a great amount of flexibility in determining the, the pacing and the length of the adventure you're running. So it's a really powerful idea that came from Explorer. The, the, I first heard this when Explorer's Keys came out for Numenera. They talk about this key and I can use it right here in this map. So an example is in this central chamber, this, this, this gear looking chamber in the kind of in the center of this map, 
that's where the final thing is going to be. There's going to be a flo small floating pyramid that's actually going to be a data sphere Virtus, and they can data can they can data cast in and find the glistening army, and then and then Samji, and and everybody can can access it. In this case, the key is Axis and Origin. Origin, yeah, Axis and Origin are the key. You need Axis and or Origin, but probably both to be able to get into this central chamber to get to the to get to the pyramid and i can move them anywhere else in this dungeon i can move that encounter where they face access anywhere i want it could be the first person that they meet which would be really fast we could get over this in one session you could also move it to that see that lower like look at the lowest far right chamber right down in those natural caves with that with that slab it could be all the way down there that could be where they meet access, which means they have to go through all these other chambers. I could even move it so that wherever, whatever chambers they go to, it's not there until they get to the last one. And the last chamber is where they meet access. I could use every chamber in this map. I could make them explore the whole place. I'm probably not going to do that because that seems kind of lame. So instead, there could be like a few different places they could go. But if they say, oh, we, we, they go down to these natural chambers, like let's say they just spend a lot of time getting into this place. And they're, they're wandering around and they're doing stuff. And I'm like, yeah, this is overstaying. It's welcome. And then they get to that chamber sort of to the lower left. If you, if you draw a line straight from the lower left to the, to the, yeah, that sort of like five room chamber with the, with the little angle thing going on. I don't have a pointer. I wish I had a pointer here. You could, you could have access right there. I could just say like, yeah, time to move access up. Most of the time, I'm not going to take the key and push it deeper into the dungeon. Most of the time, I'm going to take it and bring it up. I might put it in the furthest room of the dungeon, see how it goes, and maybe they explore a lot of it, and they get a lot of fun, and they're enjoying it, and they're seeing a lot of things, and they're learning a lot of stuff, and it's, and it's enjoyable. I might not bring it up, but if I say like, okay, it's, it's overstayed, it's welcome. We're, we're, it's time to move on. I can just move the key up, and that really good. This is going to be, I think we're going to talk, I don't know if we're going to talk about today on the talk show, but somebody asked a question about quantum ogres, right? And, and there's, this, there's this concept. I've only, every so often these phrases sort of pop up and you hear them, but I've, I think I first really heard the term on Reddit, but I'm sure it's been around for a while, except sometimes the thing goes up. And they call it the quantum ogre. The idea of the quantum ogre is you could have like a road and you might say like, well, you have the well-traveled road to the left and you have sort of the, 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 the overgrown path leading through the woods and the characters say, oh, you know, let's stay off the main road because we don't want to, we want to avoid bandits and we don't really want to see stuff. Let's go that off and back. And then you go and like along the path, you find an ogre, right? And the ogre roars at you and says, ah, give me all your gear and some food and that small halfling there. I want to eat that guy. And then you fight the ogre. And the DM's thing was that ogre was on either path, right? The other path might've been there going down the main road and they find an overturned cart and there's an ogre who's harassing the people that are on the thing. And they call that the quantum ogre because the ogre was in either place. The ogre isn't in any place until the ogre isn't in any place until you choose it so i you know and people I, I think people use it as a pejorative they're like i don't like that because it builds a world that isn't real and, and if the players find out then it feels like the whole world isn't real and that's true but the the key to like being a dm is making it feel real and like the players aren't going to think about it too much every so often i've had a player who's like Did, was that really in there so like a couple sessions back i mentioned that i had this really fun interaction with one of the characters one of the players of one of the characters where she found out that her mother was dating the you know the cyberspace the, the cyberspace motorcycle enthusiast and 
I had like the character leading up to it. And she's like, are you dating Cucuccio? And she's like, how, who told you? And I, I, it was this wonderful scene. And she was like, Mike, did you plan that? Or did you just improvise that right on the spot here? And I'm like, no, I planned it. I wanted her to know I planned it because I was like, it's such a fun event that she figured it out. It wouldn't be nearly as much fun for her to figure it out. If it turned out she planted the idea and I just repeated it back, but I hadn't. And I wanted her to know that. So I like screenshot my notes where I had said that. So every so often the players want to know, like, is that really in the book? Michelle, my wife will often say like, Hey, this thing with that we're facing is that in the book or is that something you just came up with most of the time something i just came up with but every so often i'm like no that's in the book and i don't know why it matters if it's quote unquote in the book i think players are interested with like which parts of it did we actually stumble on that worked well that were in the book and which parts that you made up ago i don't think they're at least in the players that i talk to they're not disappointed either way but i think the, the argument with the quantum ogre is they would be disappointed if they knew whatever path we take we're fighting an ogre and it would be like especially ahead of time if they say it doesn't matter which path we're going to face go down we're gonna either way we're gonna face an ogre most of the players that i play with either all the players i play with they're either they're not saying it or they don't even think it that that way they still they they play the way they put themselves into the into the story and they say which path do we want to take do we want to take well like we're just traveling to Waterdeep from 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 daggerford so why don't we take the main road and that's certainly going to be safer than taking the other path they don't think about like oh whatever we're always going to have an encounter but also as a dm the thing with the quantum ogre is it's not always just an ogre, right? It's like, why is that ogre there? And why on the, why would an ogre be on the main path as opposed to being on the, on the rugged path, right? Like the players made a choice of taking the main path to be safer, which means like they could run into a caravan that's being attacked by an ogre. That's different than if they go on the path and they find an old caravan that somebody tried to take through the path and now it's been there for 10 years, but the ogre's living in it. So you can still change based on the circumstances. And that's why I think the idea of a quantum ogre being a negative is not, shouldn't be a negative. I don't, I don't think. But the moving key is the same way. There's reasons why that key could be moving around, especially if it's access, like access could hear them and move. But I don't think, I think when we're making choices, there's, there's, there's a lot of debate i see it a lot on reddit there's a lot of debate about like the dm quote unquote making things up right i had a player once who who, who said you know oh you're not playing the mod right like you know they I, I changed up the spells for an npc and they said you're not playing the mod right and in kind of a negative way and i'm like i'm not an excel spreadsheet like if you want to play the mod you can go home and play by yourself you don't need me you know but i'm the one telling the story and the spellcaster had a different spell lineup this time and there's definitely people who, and probably players, right? Who feel like if you're, you know, there needs to be solidity in the world. If you're changing hit points in the middle of a fight, the illusion, like, why am I bothering to have a damage bonus? Like, I, I could attack with anything. I could be attacking with a dagger. And if my damage is lower, the monster's still going to die in, in two to three rounds. And it's interesting. I'm playing Destiny. I'm, boy, I'm getting way off track, but I've got time and I'm already prepared. I was, I'm playing Destiny 2 again. I haven't played Destiny 2 in a long time. And I, I'd finished Elden Ring and I'd finished Horizons Forbidden West, both of which are fantastic games. And I was like, I need a, kind of another game to kind of chew in. And I hadn't played Destiny while it's free to play until I spent $70 on expansions. But it was free to play up until I spent $70 on expansions. And one of the things is like you go on some of these missions and the missions scale to your level. So a lot of what you're doing in Destiny is going and hunting new weapons. You're going and hunting new weapons and the weapons all give you like a, a light score, which is sort of like their version of level. You essentially level by having better weapons. But then the content is scaling based on the weapons you have. So why am I bothering to get a new weapon? If it's already scaling the damage down... You know, what am I doing it for? Now, I'm, I play it because I like to see the environments. I like to see the locations. I like to hear a little bit of the story. I like to understand what's going on. To me, getting the weapon isn't a big thing. But you could tell, like, for a loot-driven game, 
you know, going and grabbing it, you know, going and grabbing it and then finding out that it's all scaling. Anyway, World of Warcraft had this problem. I remember I, I heard that World of Warcraft, they had certain monsters that you fought where the amount of damage that you inflicted to the monster scaled with your level. So if you had three different characters of different levels attacking the same monster, the, the damage that you were each inflicting was scaled to your level. Essentially meaning that damage was percentage-based, not phys- not, 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 not constant-based. And I was like, well, why, why bother leveling? Like, if you're attacking a monster and the monster's hit points are changing and, and dynamically, like, while you're hitting it, it's changing. And so you can see, like, in D&D, it's kind of the same thing. If you say something like, you know, oh, I don't even... If you let your players know, like, oh, I don't even track damage... I just let the monster die. Well, then why would a player bother to care about a plus one sword, right? Now, I guess you could say, well, damage doesn't matter, but hits do, I guess. But certainly, like, why would you ever power attack, right? Why would you ever smite? Like, like no, I'm hanging on to my smites. Why? Because the monster's going to die anyway. I'm not going to smite it. So that, you know, it's something to think about. And it's something where you like, you really don't want to peek behind the curtain. But I, I'm, and, you know, for me... When I think about scaling stuff like that, when I talk about the dials, right? The changing up the dials of monster difficulty. Because again, like a paladin's like, oh, why, why do I go through all this effort to get a high armor class if Mike's just going to attack me more times when he misses? That's a fair, fair argument. And the key's not letting him know. It's part of it. But, but we also stick to the default. My, my, my opinion is I try to stick to the defaults as much as possible. And I only change them when the pacing of the game matters. When it... You know, when the, the pacing and the feeling, when I want to adjust the pacing and the feeling of the game, then I'll turn the dials. But I like to think that you have these dials, you know, number of monsters, amount of damage they do, number of attacks they have, and how many hit points they have. I like to think that there's these four dials, but they all have springs in them. And the spring centers them. So when you're pulling it, and the tension gets heavier the more you move it. And then you, like, when you let go, it springs back to place again. So normally you just sit with all the four dials in all the four center locations. But every so often you'll turn a dial because you want the game to go a certain way. Either I want to make sure that the characters feel like they're being challenged, so I increase the damage and, and number of attacks. Or <laughs> most of the time, the battle has overstayed its welcome. I'm turning it down. One dial in Numenera I've been doing a lot. Like I don't think I've ever used armor for monsters because... It, it, I don't like the idea that a player feels like their damage was reduced when they hit. The players love having armor, and I'm happy to do it. But also, some monsters are, do so little damage that if a character has armor, they're going to negate most of it. So I'll, I'll touch the damage up a little bit, a point or two, right? I think I might do it for these, these assassins. I might knock them up to eight. Damage is eight or nine. So, but I don't use the die. I don't, I don't, I just let them do damage because most of the time I don't want the battle to go that long anyway. So them hitting a monster and having most of their damage negated is lame. It's pretty lame. It's like having high armor class, high armor class monsters in D and D. They just feel lame. Anyway, big rant. Let's get back to the game. So, so there, my, my big point about the quantum key, right? That the, the key to get into this place, I can move anywhere. But that said, I, I want to kind of look at these locations. I think what would be useful now because I want to focus on the next game. We always want to focus on the next game. And I want to think about like, what are the things that they might find in these, in these various locations? So, you know, the one thing I really wish Notion had was a way to very quickly, a way to very quickly annotate a map. And they don't really have a good quick way to annotate a map. We're going to go counterclockwise. So starting at this big tunnel on the upper left, 
we're going to move counterclockwise and sort of choose what kinds of things they find in here. So I think in that first chamber, we're going to have a dead random monster hewed apart by Axis. I think that'll be an, a fun, interesting thing to see. Then they go into this, this other chamber that's got sort of an upper platform, sort of an upper staircase, a big dais, lots of things going in here. So what would be a cool thing there? And I rolled some random stuff. I have a nano-laced burning cybernetic. For, let me look over the things I've got here and decide if any of these fit well. Transparent moss-covered primate megalith. I think we're going to move that somewhere else. That will probably, yeah, I think that'll be further down in those in that cave area. A glowing, smoking primate uh, monolith, primeval. I like primeval rather than primate. A cybernetic, actually, parts of it are, are origin. So that's two different primeval sort of things. I think that works better. We're going to move those lower in the list because that's going to be sort of in the in the natural caverns. A cracked ancient superhuman stasis chamber holding or Orstenia. Who the hell is Orstenia? Oh, Orstenia is the person who created this place. So I think that stasis chamber might be in that lower. But again, this could be sort of a quantum, a quantum place. It could be that area with the big circle, the big pool on the left-hand side, or it, it could be in that, that larger pool down in the lower right, kind of past the primeval caves. That could be, a, that could be another location. Gravity-defying smoking reptilian constructor, a place where they're building they're they're building maybe they're oh what if oh here's an idea what if it's the same technology here that the fourth emperor was using to build the orgolians like they learned how to build the orgolians here and it turns out that that the the gleaming the glistening army and orgolians are actually similar that could be kind of neat and could that be in that chamber yeah, sure. I think we could put that there. We have a nano-laced burning cybernetic furnace. That's where they sort of get rid of things. That might be in that lower left chamber area. It might either be that big circle or it might be the other one. Glyphed encapsulated AI-based old bones. That could be in one of those other one of those other chambers. So I actually have quite a bit sort of ready to go, I think. Is there any other any other things I want to put here? Any other any other sort of things that I want them to kind of discover, or that when I look at the chambers, I say, "Oh, that would be that would be really good." Glyph encapsulated AI based old bones. Could be like a giant version of, you know, another excavate, dead or dying excavate, like Tacron. That's kind of neat, you know. And where did where would that uh, where would that go? So how many chambers have I got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Really nine. What did I say? Wait, let's do this again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So there's ten chambers. I got one, two, three, four, five, six. I got seven. For funsies, since we have a little bit of time, why don't I roll up a couple more? I'll tell you, these random locations really, really work well. So I am using Patrons of Sly Flourish have access to a PDF known as Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 2, which is all kinds of stuff that's similar to what you find in the Lazy DMs Companion, but not in the Lazy DMs Companion. And one of those things is a science fantasy generator. This is the science fantasy generator. I specifically designed the science fantasy generator to help me build stuff for Numenera. I built it for Numenera specifically. So, so let's see, we are going to build, we're just going to build a monument. And so the way we build it is condition, description, origin, and then monument are the, the way we roll it. So, oh, sh shucks. Where did my, oh God, I went way under. 
I'm never gonna get that die back again. This is why we have a dice tray. Mike, why aren't you using the dice tray? Six, fifteen, sixteen, three. So, six, thunderous, fifteen, cracked, sixteen, AI based, three, archway. Okay, let's write that down. And of course, I can't remember four things. I remember AI based, archway. I can remember three. Smoking, was it? It was six, right? Thunderous. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I don't know what an AI-based thing, but this could be connected to this, you know, it could be like a path where somebody was trying to maybe connect an AI across time, like across space and time distances, and it's breaking, and huge amounts of power are arcing out of this thing. I think that could be pretty cool. I'm good with that. Let's do, we're going to do three more, right? I think we said we had one, two, I should number these. Two more. Six, another thunderous one. Six, ten, three, and thirteen. Six, thunderous, ten, floating, three, machine, thunderous, floating machine, thirteen, stasis chamber. I think I already have a stasis chamber. So we say six, thunderous, floating, machine, stasis. I don't really know what that means. And, I, and it kind of redoes some stuff, but we'll do one more. And we'll see. 19, 19, 17, and 20. Those are some good rolls. Transparent, chaotic, ooze-based megalith. Transparent, chaotic, ooze-based megalith. Kind of cool. And see, once again, I can't remember the middle, the middle part. Chaotic. This could be like a weird polanier battery, leaking polanier battery that was used to kind of pour a lot of energy into this. So that's 10 locations. I think that's pretty good. It might be kind of fun. How are we doing on time? We got a few minutes. We got a couple minutes left. Let's let's grab a couple of monsters, right? So let me pull up the bestiary three. Other critters to explore. Boy, I wish. Let's see, Numenera, bestiary three. They have a great, like old ruins table here exploring ruins and there are two tables so first thing we do and they, that's these are the d100 rolls one thing about numenera is it only uses a d6 d100 and d20 it doesn't use 12s or eights or fours i hate the d4 so we start off by rolling odd or even on an odd we will do table a we are doing table a then you roll a D100 and we get a 47. And a 47 is a dream sallow. Dream sallow. And that looks like it's in this book. And that is in the B37. So page 37 of the first bestiary. The dream sallow. Oh yeah, it's this weird tree. Branches covered. Yeah, uh, sure. What if this grew out of one of these things? I could see that being cool. So we're going to put dream sallow. Yeah, I like it. Dream Sallow. B1, and that was page, I already forgot, page 37. So I just learned something. It only took me like, whatever, 12 months of doing this show to realize that the bestiary index for, has, has the book name for every monster in it, in the index. That is really handy. So we can close that. Back to the front page. We're gonna roll up, we'll roll two more monsters. So once again, I'm here once again to roll some random monsters. Table B, 15, 
B15, the ort. All right. Problem with the ort is it's it's in here a million times. So we go back down to the index. Zoop. And we look for, whoops. The ort, O-R-T. Best theory two, page 121. 121, 121, 121. Oh, look at that guy. He's got a colander on his head. Perfect. Distorted leftover after images of those who travel through transdimensional portals. Yay. Oh, and they look really cool. You remember my primeval people? I tell you, the random gods, man, sometimes they really, they really work out. 121, B2, 121. Awesome. I think that's good enough. I got eight monsters. Cool stuff. Ready to go. I dig it. I think we are all set. So we are going to call the show over today. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today while I prepared for my Numenera game. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get weekly Sly Flourish articles sent straight to your inbox along with a free PDF of an adventure generator PDF includes a lot of tables like the ones I was just using. You can join the Sly Flourish Patreon where you get access to all kinds of exclusive material, including the City of Arches. A, right now, I think it's a 34-page city source book that you get for joining, as well as video previews, Discord access, all kinds of good stuff. You can pick up any of my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore. Link is down below, including the Lazy DMs Companion, which you can pick up. Or you can help me out on YouTube by subscribing to my channel, liking the video, and passing the video along to anybody that you know that you think might enjoy it. So I want to thank everybody for hanging out. Have a great day and get out there and play a role-playing game.